seat. As you do, let's pray together. Let's pray in this moment, not because it's what we're supposed to do at this time during the service, but because we need God's help. Father, we are so grateful that we can call you our Father, that we know you as our Father, that you've chosen us to be your sons and your daughters. You have been our Father, not because we've earned it or deserved that privilege, but because you, by the power of the Spirit, have caused us to be born again to this living hope. We have been born into your family, chosen and adopted because of the grace and love that you displayed at the cross. We are thankful that you are our Father. You are the Father, the Father of all. And you are in heaven on your throne. You exist eternally. You have no beginning and no end. You are glorious and holy and awesome beyond our imagination. So we are grateful that you are our Father, that you take care of us as our Father, that you promise us great things as our Father, that you give us wonderful blessings as our Heavenly Father. Thank you. For all of these truths we've been singing and reading, thank you that you have displayed and demonstrated your love for us. Thank you that your love is everlasting. Thank you that your love is deep, deep and wide. Thank you that this love was displayed for us definitively. Thank you that this redeeming love has been and will be our theme until we die and into eternity. Lord, let this be our everlasting song, the deep, deep love of our God. Lord, I pray with the Apostle Paul, as he prayed for the Ephesians, that we would be rooted and grounded in love, that we would have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height, and depth. And that we would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And in doing so, that we would be filled with all the fullness of God. Oh God, I pray that you would help us to know what is unknowable. That we would know that which surpasses knowledge the depth and length and breadth and height of your love, that we would know this love that, n- that nothing can separate us from in all of creation. Neither height nor depth nor anything in all creation can separate us from your love for us in Christ. Help us to believe these things. As we see them, help us to believe them and change our lives by them. And so, Lord, in this moment, I pray as we open your word, as we look into your word, that you would reveal yourself, your greatness, your glory to us. Reveal your beauty in such a way that we are transformed, that we are reconciled to you, that our sins are forgiven, that our relationship with you is restored, and that we find great joy in you and in what you've done. Oh God, do this work in us. And help me now to declare what I don't have language to declare. 
Help me to declare what is impossible to declare. Lord, help me to do this not with words of human wisdom or some sort of worldly persuasiveness, but help me to do this by the demonstration of the power of the Spirit of God. That you might open eyes, that you might open hearts, that you might do what only you can do. Save your people, O oh God. Save your bride. Purify your church. And do it for your glory and for our good and for our joy. We pray you do these things. In the great name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. And amen. We've all heard the saying, actions speak louder than words. If you say you're going to do something and you don't do it, what you said is meaningless. We know this is true in every area of life, right? Merely saying something is not enough if your actions don't back it up. Parents, we know this, right? You tell your kid to do something, and they say they will do it, but then they don't. When you ask them why they didn't do what they said they're going to do, how much use would it be if the kid responded, I told you that I would do it. Isn't that good enough? Isn't just saying I'm going to do it good enough? No. No, you didn't do it. You must do something to back up your words. Husbands and wives know this, right? No matter how many times he or she tells you they love you, it doesn't matter unless they back up that with actions of love. Anybody can say the words, I love you. Anybody can say those three words, but it's altogether different to actually show someone that you love them. So what we say matters. Yes, what we say matters. But what makes words better is when the words are backed up with, supported by our actions. That's why we say actions speak louder than words. Now, here at Miller Heights Baptist Church, we love the fact that God has spoken to us. God has said words to us. We think that is an awesome reality that we devote all of our time to understanding. We are zealous to listen to the words God has spoken. But the reality is, God has not simply spoken words to us. God hasn't just told us that He loves us. He hasn't just said, I love you. God has shown us through His actions, that He loves us. God has demonstrated His love for us. And that's what our passage in the book of Romans shows us this morning. It shows us how we can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God loves His people. So turn in your copy of God's Word, Romans chapter 5. As we prepare to partake of the Lord's Supper this morning, we're going to meditate today on Romans 5, verses 6 through 11. This is one of my favorite passages in all the Bible. It is so clear, this passage. So clear. Before we read these verses, let me just remind you of the context leading up to this so we can kind of get a running start as we read these few verses this morning. In these first four chapters of the book of Romans, Paul has explained that even though we deserve 
wrath, God's wrath because of our sin, God justifies those who put their faith in Jesus. Paul definitively shows that we can never be right with God through works of the law, that is, through what we do. He says no one will be justified by working for God. Don't even try to religion your way into salvation with this one true God. You can't do enough good works to get God to accept you because all of us are sinners and we all deserve to suffer under the righteous and eternal wrath of God. Paul has said to us very clearly that the only way to be accepted by God is through the work of Jesus Christ in His death and in His resurrection. When Jesus died on the cross, He paid the penalty for all the sins of all of those who trust in Him so that God can accept a sinner as right in His sight because the penalty has been paid. So justification, a right standing with God, is by faith in Jesus alone. And in chapter 4 of Romans, Paul gave the example of Abraham. Even Abraham the father of the Jewish people, the patriarch Abraham, even he was justified by faith and not by works. Abraham believed what God said and it was counted to him as righteousness. And now as Paul gets to chapter 5, we saw last week that he begins rejoicing in some of the benefits that come to us because of this justification. He answers the question here, what good is our salvation? Like, why does it matter? Thus, Paul explains some of the benefits that come because of the death of Jesus and His resurrection for us. Because Jesus died for our sins, and because we have justification by faith in Him, here is what we have. Here is what we can rejoice in. And so last Sunday, we looked at the first five verses of Romans chapter 5, and we looked at five possessions we have because of our justification by faith. And this week, we're going to see more delightful truths about our salvation. And so let's read together Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. Let me read God's word over us as you follow along. Paul says, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is the eternal word of our God. May he plant its truth deep in our hearts. From this passage, let me highlight three benefits of the death of Jesus 
on the cross for us. Notice that Paul's focus is on the death of Jesus here. Notice his focus in these particular verses is on the death of Jesus. Nearly every sentence of this passage reminds us of either death or blood. And I pray these three truths about the death of Jesus would absolutely grip us to the core. May we feel these truths deep down in our souls this morning. Notice the first truth, number one. Jesus died to prove God's love for us. Jesus died, why? To prove God's love for us. Now listen, verses 6 through 8 are among the most, most breathtaking verses in all the Bible. Notice in verse 6, Paul says, Jesus died for the ungodly. Paul says at just the right time, in spite of our weakness, Jesus gave up His life on the cross. And verse 7 says that one of the reasons this is so shocking, one of the reasons that verse 6 is so shocking that Jesus died for the ungodly, He died for those who are weak, is that it's rare that someone would sacrifice himself even for a righteous person. Someone who's done good to them. That's really rare. People don't die normally for merely respectable people. Maybe there's a few people in high positions who have people who would sacrifice for them. Maybe there's a cause they would sacrifice themselves for. But no one dies for worthless people. That's the point. Death on behalf of others is really rare. But verse 8 says, this is precisely how God has demonstrated His love toward us. While we were sinners, verse 8 says. Notice, not after we had cleaned ourselves up. Not after we had done all these good things for God. No, while we were still sinners, here is how God showed His love for us. Christ gave up His life for us. Think about what verse 8 says. If you are trusting in Jesus, if you are one of God's people, verse 8 says that God loves you. You see that in verse 8? It says not just that God says He loves you. Listen, if God says He loves you, that is a monumental thing. If God declares His love for you, that is something that is breathtaking beyond imagination. I love the children's song, Jesus loves me, this I know. How do we know? What does the song say about how do we know? For the Bible tells me so. Now listen, this is true. We should teach this to our children. The Bible says God loves us in Christ. And, and we believe what the Bible says. If the Bible says it, we believe it. It is so true. But listen, this truth is so much better than that. The Bible not only says God loves us, it tells us how God has proven His love for us. Verse 8 says that God definitively, demonstrably shows His love for us. He has demonstrated, not just said that He loves us, He's demonstrated that love through the death of Jesus on the cross. Maybe if I were writing the song in response to this passage, it would go like this. Jesus loves me, this I know. For the cross shows me so. 
Here's the main point that you need to see in this passage. Look at the cross of Jesus and know that God loves you. Yes, even you, even me, with all of my filthiness, with all of my sin, with all of my iniquity, God loves me. At the cross, God made a definitive declaration of His love for us. The cross says God loved you before you were ever born. He loves you right now. And He will never stop loving you. The cross says that God's love for you will never change. We, we don't understand this kind of love. Human love is based on the other person's response to our love. I mean, you and I will just stop loving someone if they refuse our love long enough, right? God will not do that. You know why? Because His love is not based on who we are or what we've done. His love is demonstrated in the cross of Jesus Christ. Friends, if you want to know and experience God's love for you, you don't have to go on some retreat that promises a mystical experience with God. If you want to enjoy the love of God for you more, you don't have to learn to love or forgive yourself. If you want to enjoy God's love for you, you don't need to go to a church with lights and smoke and professional musicians that play on your emotions. If you want to feel the love of God for you, look at the death of Jesus on the cross. Amen. Consider what verse 8 says about the measure of God's love for us. How, dare we ask the question, how much does God love us? How, how much does He? The measure of God's love, notice in verse 8, is seen in both the price He paid and the unworthiness of the objects of His love. Consider the price He paid to demonstrate this love for you. Consider who it is who died for us in our place. It's not just a good person or even an important person who died for us. Jesus is the eternal Son of God who created the entire universe and who even now holds all things together. Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's a title that means King or Anointed One. Jesus is the King of the whole universe. He is the King of all kings. He is the pearl of great price. He is the treasure worth sacrificing everything to have. And so friends, can you imagine a greater price? The King didn't pay with gold or silver to prove His love for us. The King paid with His own blood. A greater price cannot even be imagined by us. But also notice the objects of God's love. How much does God love us? The price He paid, but also the objects of His love. Notice how we're described in this passage. Does this passage describe us as worthy objects deserving of God's love? No. Notice four words in this passage used to describe us as unworthy objects of the love of God. In verse 6, we are described as weak. Now, this is not a reference to our, physical, our lack of physical strength. Right? This isn't a rebuke for those of us who don't lift weights. This is a reference to our moral or spiritual weakness. We are unable to obey God on our own. We are weak and helpless. Benjamin Franklin is famous for saying something like, God helps those who help themselves. 
It's amazing how many people think that that's in the Bible. It is not. <laughs> Scripture teaches that God helps those who cannot help themselves. God saves those who cannot save themselves. Verse 6 also describes us as ungodly. Not only are we weak, but we are ungodly. So it's not because of our maturity, our holiness, that Jesus died for us. He didn't look down and say, look at those awesome Christians down there. I think I will just demonstrate my love by dying for them. No, He died for people who despise Him. He died for people who belittle Him. He died for idol worshipers like us. Verse 8 describes us as sinners. It wasn't after we cleaned ourselves up that Jesus died for us. No, while we were still sinners, we all have this in common. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And thus, we deserve God's righteous wrath and condemnation for all eternity. And in case those three words and descriptions of us are not enough, notice how we're described in verse 10. We're described as enemies. Friends, we are not by nature friends of God. We are not by nature friends of God. We are by nature God's enemies. We are opposed to God. And yet, He shows His love for His enemies by dying in our place for our sins. Like, how can this be true? It's just, it's, I think it's proof that we don't quite grasp what we believe because we're not more transformed by this truth. Like, how can this be true? This is strange. This is mysterious love. And this should be downright shocking to us every single day of our lives. You see, in our culture, we're familiar with stories, as verse 7 says, that are rare of brave people dying for family or friends or country. Like, we're somewhat familiar with that. We hail those people as heroes. That does happen even though it is rare. But we are altogether unfamiliar with this kind of love. With people dying, not for friends or family or country, but people dying for who? People dying for enemies. November of 2010, a Marine named Kyle Carpenter jumped on a live grenade in order to save a fellow Marine he was stationed with. In courage and bravery, He jumped on this live grenade in order to save his friend. Such self-sacrifice is certainly worth imitating. But that is not what Jesus did. Jesus didn't lay down His life for His friends. He jumped on the grenade in order to save His enemies. Those who threw the grenade at Him. He died for people like us, you and me, who were intent on despising and destroying Him all of our lives. We are the most unworthy objects of God's love imaginable. But God demonstrates, He shows His love for us. Giving His own life for us while we were weak and ungodly, sinners and His enemies. Friends, please hear this. Don't think that God is waiting for you to clean yourself up and get your act together before you trust Him, before you come to Him, before you follow Him. You don't have to get your act together. You don't have to get all your ducks in a row to trust in Jesus. You know why? 
Because Jesus didn't die for morally righteous people who are clean and pure and who have it all together. Jesus died for weak, ungodly, sinful enemies like you and me. Look at the cross and know, and know beyond a shadow of a doubt how much God loves you. Jesus died to prove this love to you. I want to put a Sinclair Ferguson quote on the screen. This is one of my favorite quotes outside of Scripture. I've gone to it again and again to understand God's love. Here's what Ferguson says. He says, when we think of Christ dying on the cross, we are shown the links to which God, God's love goes in order to win us back to Himself. He says, we would almost think that God loved us more than He loves His Son. We cannot measure such love by any other standard. He is saying to us, I love you this much. Ferguson said, the cross is the heart of the Gospel. It makes the good news the good news. Christ died for us. He has stood in our place before God's judgment seat. He has borne our sins. God has done something on the cross that we could never do ourselves. And here's the line that lays me bare. But God does something to us as well as for us through the cross. God has done something to us as well as for us. What has He done to us? He persuades us that He loves us. He persuades us that He loves us. Friends, there will be times in your life, I guarantee you, and I'm speaking to myself now, there will be times in my life when I'm going to be tempted to doubt God's love for me. There will be circumstances in your life, maybe they're upon you right now, that cause you to doubt whether what verse 8 says is true. When your world is shaking, it is easy to look around and base your understanding of God's love on your circumstances. God must not love me or this wouldn't be happening to me. But friends, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't allow difficult times to interpret God's love for you. You know that God loves you because He sent His Son to die for you. He has proven His love for you once and for all. That's the truth of verses 6-8. through Jesus died to prove that God loves us. Here's the second truth that I want you to see in this passage. Jesus died to give us assurance of future salvation. He died to give us an assurance of future salvation. So verses 9 and 10 give us the future reality of salvation. Jesus has demonstrated God's love on the cross in the past. But what good does that do for us in the future? Well, notice what Paul says, beginning in verse 9. Since, therefore, we have now been justified, how? By His blood, that is, by His death, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. Verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God, how? By the death of His Son, much more, 
now that we are reconciled, shall we, that's future tense, shall we be saved by His life. And so the knowledge of what God has done for us in the past, Paul says, gives us confidence in the future. The knowledge of what God's done for us in the past gives us confidence for the future. Since Jesus laid down His life for us in justification, we have assurance that we will be saved from the wrath of God. Since God has reconciled us to Himself through Jesus' death, we have assurance that we will finally be saved by Jesus' life. And so because of Jesus' death, we not only have justification and reconciliation, but we have confidence that our eternal salvation is secure and it is certain. Notice the phrase, much more, both in verse 9 and verse 10. I love this. Paul is arguing here from the greater to the lesser. The point is that the hard part is over. Right? If Jesus has laid down His life for His enemies, that's the hard part then He will certainly do the easier part and keep us in this salvation. Right? Now that we are reconciled, why wouldn't God continue to save us and eternally save us? If He saved us when we were His enemies, He will save us now that we are part of His family. I love the fact that Paul puts justification and reconciliation parallel to each other in these two verses. Now, it is an awesome thing that we are justified that we have been declared right in God's sight. It is fantastic to think that God considers us perfectly righteous in His sight. But what if God declared us right, but still kept His distance from us? Like, What if we were justified, but still treated as sort of despised servants? Well, Paul says God not only justifies us, but He reconciles us to Himself. So here's another big theological word in the book of Romans. Reconciliation. Notice, we were reconciled to who? Who were we reconciled to? We were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Reconciliation speaks of this restored relationship that we have with God because of the death of Jesus. God gives His people a restored relationship with Him through what Jesus has accomplished for us. Friends, this is the ultimate goal of our salvation. Not merely that we would go to heaven one day and avoid hell. That, that is fantastic. That we get to go to heaven and avoid hell. That is absolutely fantastic. But even more fantastic than that is that we have a restored relationship with God as our Father for all eternity. We've been reconciled to God. We've been adopted into God's family. God is the good of the Gospel. The relationship we have with God is the best news of the death of Jesus. And in these realities, we have a rock-solid assurance of our salvation, Paul says. We can know, he says, we can have this assurance that we have been and will be saved from God's wrath because Jesus died on the cross. We deserve God's righteous wrath, but we have been saved from that wrath of God eternally. So friends, if you struggle with assurance of your salvation, always wondering whether you're justified, look at the death of Jesus on the cross. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The death of Jesus and you're looking to Him, you're trusting in Him as your Lord and Savior is proof 
that you have been reconciled to God and therefore you can be confident that you will be saved by Jesus' life, by His resurrection life. So how kind of our Savior. What love. God demonstrates His love in that Christ died for us, but you know how else God demonstrates His love for us? By giving us assurance. He loves us that He, he gives us assurance of our eternal salvation. That's the truth of verses 9 and 10. But notice the third and final truth about the cross of Christ in this passage. Jesus died to enable us to live with joy now. Jesus died to enable us to live with joy now. So we, we talked about a past reality. Christ died for our sins. He's shown God's love for us. We talked about a future reality and the assurance that we have of this ultimate salvation. But, but what about the present? We, we can live with joy now. Notice our response in verse 11. Paul says, more than that, which is an amazing thing to say after what he's just said in verses 1 through 10. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Here's what should characterize our lives in the here and now. Now, when he says more than that, at the beginning of verse 11, I don't think Paul is saying that our response to this is more important than the gospel itself, more important than the truths he's been sharing. I think he's saying on top of all of that, we get to rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Almost like the cherry on top. On top of all of these massive truths, we get the joy. This is a present tense verb in verse 11, meaning we continually rejoice now, right now, constantly, continually, at all times. This should be our response to God's love demonstrated for us in the cross that is our rejoicing, our joy in Him. So no matter what difficulties we face, no matter what troubles come our way, the Christian can live with rejoicing constantly because we are the people who've been justified and reconciled. We are the people who know God loves us. We will be eternally saved by Jesus. We can rejoice no matter what we experience. Remember what verse 3 said last week about rejoicing? Look back up to verse 3. Not only that, he says, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Paul says we can rejoice even in the hardest times of life because we know that God is for us and not against us. He is working our suffering for our good. So what do we do when we don't have joy? We don't always have this joy. What should we do? Well, we do what the Bible tells us we should do, and that is we should look to the cross of Jesus. This is where our joy is found. Because in the cross of Jesus is hope and peace and joy for weary and burdened souls. No matter what crumbles around us, this is solid. Christ died for us, and because of that, we have a right standing with God. We have a right relationship with God, and we have assurance for all eternity. You know what this tells us? This tells us God is not indifferent to our joy. Joy is not just an optional add-on to the Christian life. The Father sent His Son to live and die and rise from the dead so that we would have this rejoicing in Him all of our days. In other words, God is for your joy right now. 
Right now, God wants you to rejoice no matter what's going on in your life. Be joyful always. Rejoice. And again, I say rejoice. This too shows God's love for us, does it not? As our Father, He has sacrificed for our joy. He's committed Himself to making us as happy as possible in Him. He wants us to be full of joy, not just in this life, but for all eternity. So friends, if you're trusting in Jesus this morning, think of what this passage says you have right now. We can even go back to, to verse 1 and just recap a little bit. Think of what you and I have right now. According to verse 1 and verse 9, we have been justified. According to verse 1, we have peace with God. According to verse 2, we have access to God's grace. According to verses 3 and 4, we have knowledge of suffering's purpose. According to verse 5, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. According to verse 6 and 8, Jesus died in our place for our sins. According to verse 8, we have definitive proof that God loves us. He has demonstrated His love for us. According to verse 9, you have assurance that you are saved eternally from the wrath of God. According to verse 10, you have been reconciled. You've been saved by Jesus' life. And according to verse 11, you have every reason in the world to rejoice always. But if you're not trusting in Jesus this morning, let me warn you again, you don't have any of these blessings. None of these things are true of you if Jesus isn't your Lord and Savior. And so I plead with you this morning, be reconciled to God through the death of Jesus. Acknowledge what this passage says about you. If you're not trusting in Jesus and God is at work in your heart right now, here's, here's what I want you to do. Just acknowledge what this passage says about you. Acknowledge, I am weak. I am ungodly. I am a sinner. I am an enemy of God. Acknowledge that. And then do what? After you acknowledge that this is who you are, that this is an accurate description of you, then just acknowledge what God has done to redeem you from that. Acknowledge that Jesus died in your place for your sins. Romans 10 says that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised Him from the dead, we will be saved. And so believe in Jesus now. Confess Him as the Lord of your life. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. What a Savior. What a Savior we have. So friends, this is a great text to respond to by partaking of the Lord's Supper this morning. Because the message of the Lord's Supper is the message of the dying love of our Savior. The Father did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up to suffering and death for my sins, for your sins, if you're trusting in Him. The bread and the cup remind us of the love of God for us. In just a moment, when you hold that bread and that cup in your hand, it's a visible reminder that God loves you. And He has done this to reconcile you to Himself. His Jesus' body was broken. His blood poured out for our sin, for our weakness, for our ungodliness, for our enmity toward God. Listen, Jesus didn't come to die for righteous people who have perfect faith and no doubt. There are no people like that. There are only rebels like us. And so if you know yourself to be a sinner, this meal is for you this morning. Jesus Himself invites you 
to acknowledge your lack of faith and to rejoice in Him. He invites you to come and partake of the bountiful provision of His grace, of His love towards you. And so this is an invitation to come to Jesus and find grace today. Come to Jesus and hear His promise. Come to Jesus and receive His love for you. He has rescued you from the wrath of God eternally. And so if you're trusting in Jesus this morning, if you've publicly declared your faith through baptism, then you're invited to this feast this morning that you do not deserve. You have not been faithful, but enjoying this grace is not dependent upon you. Enjoying this feast is only possible because God is faithful to His promises. But listen, if you're not trusting in Jesus this morning, you should not partake of these elements. If Jesus is not your treasure, if you don't trust Him as Savior, you should not partake and eat and drink judgment on yourself. But rather, you should plead with God to change your heart and reconcile you to Himself. Ask God to help you repent of your sins and embrace Jesus as the Master of your life. And the good news is that God can do that right now. So run to Jesus. He alone can save. He alone can rescue you. So as 1 Corinthians 11 commands us to do, we're going to take some time to examine ourselves. The music team is going to go ahead and come on up and lead us in the Gethsemane hymn. Meditate on the suffering of our Savior. The deacons are going to go ahead and come forward who are going to be passing out these elements. And while we sing this song and while the elements are being passed out, let's take this time to remember and rejoice. Remember and rejoice. Let me pray for us. Oh God, help us to do that. Help us to remember the dying love of our Savior. Help us to rejoice in this moment. Help us to search our hearts and see if there be any way in us that is displeasing to you. Help us to believe and know your love for us, your assurance to us. Would we need you in this moment? Would you do your work in our hearts in your way right now? We pray you do it in Jesus' name. Amen.